Hector, how's it going? Going pretty well, my friend. How about yourself? Super excited. We're going to have a great conversation today with Jeff Carr. Jeff Carr is an internationally known cybersecurity advisor, including counseling to the CIA, DIA, FBI, and the Chief of Naval Operations Strategic Study Group. Jeff's also the founder and organizer of Suits and Spooks, the world-renowned collision event to discuss the hard challenges in the national security space. Jeff also authored the book Inside Cyber Warfare, Mapping the Cyber Underworld. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Hector, this is going to be a great conversation with Jeff. Are you excited? Oh, I'm very excited. The one thing I'll point out about the book is that he wrote it back when cyber war wasn't even a cool term to use. So I'm very interested in the conversation, and I think it's going to be very fun. Perfect. Let's dive into our conversation with Jeff Carr. I think the reason why I'm a little bit more um, excited than usual is that Jeff has been uh, a great friend to myself, to me, rather. Um, but also uh, a big supporter, you know. When I came out of prison, he was one of the only people to reach out to me, or one of the first people to reach out to me and invite me to his conference, uh, Suits and Spooks. So that was very cool. Thanks, Jeff. That's awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Jeff, for joining the Hacker and the Fed. Uh, you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, first of all, you know, Hacker, was, I was so excited that you said yes. So, I mean, I, I want to thank you for coming and, and speaking. And as far as, uh, you know, as far as my background is concerned, it's pretty, pretty uh, standard stuff. I think I, I, st I got a late start in, in the world of, uh, of technology. It wasn't until 98 or 99 that uh, I became interested in uh, a career in technology related to the internet. So I, I missed out on quite a bit, but uh, I landed at Microsoft and, uh, Became, and this was during the early years of the Iraq War, and and I started doing some research uh, with some folks there about how to sort of contribute something right to the fight. And when I left, um, it was right after Russia invaded Georgia, and and that my my research in that area resulted in the book uh, Inside Cyber Warfare. And that book came out in two thousand nine. I think it was the same year that Richard Clark's book that he wrote with uh, Rob uh, Kanaki came out. So we were, you know, we were early, I think. Uh, today, there's, a, you know, hundreds of books on this topic. But back then, I think it was, it was still relatively novel. And then I, and I, so I left, Microsoft actually had its first round of layoffs in 2009. So the timing was good. I, at least I had the book, uh, you know, to fall back on. Uh, and then it just became a process of trying to figure out how to make a living when you don't have a degree in computer science and, uh, and you're not a hacker. When you, you don't have either of those two things, it's not exactly a smooth path to break into uh, the world of cybersecurity. But I had a lot of interest, and I and I knew a lot of interesting folks, and the book was well-received, and I sort of just learned as I went. And uh, in 2011 is actually when I started the conference called Suits and Spooks. Uh, by that time, I had already spoken at hundreds of conferences, uh, thanks to, again, thanks to the book. and. 
and I was just uh, really fed up with the whole com- the whole standard conference format. I uh, wanted to do something that would be different and bring in people that were controversial and a- allow the attendees to ask questions. Nothing irritated me more than hearing some guy sp- speak for 30 minutes, give his opinions. There was no way for the audience to question him or, you know, to 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 have any input into what was being shared. So that's that that was the basis around which I, I created Suits and Spooks. Bring in folks from the intelligence community, bring in folks from Silicon Valley, bring in attendees that were smart enough to know bullshit when they heard it and ask questions. And we I just kept doing it. It was it's been great fun and and it, it fortunately is especially especially this year with the Ukraine war uh, or with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it sort of served as a focal point for people that could come together and, and provide some assistance in, in some unique ways for that conflict. So, Jeff, that's a great segue into let's let's start off at the, at the basics. Some of our audience might not know this. What is cyber war? Yeah, there's no real good definition for that. So, uh, you know, my, my working definition for that has always been uh, that a if there is a, uh, a a conflict taking place around the world somewhere and one modality of that conflict is being waged in cyberspace, then I would consider that an act of of cyber warfare, right? So, but the warfare already has to exist. So I wouldn't uh, classify just a an attack. You know, if if a if a hacker uh, breaks into a um, you know, into a company and steals their data, that's not, I would not call that cyber war. The hacker's not at war with the company. The company's not at war, you know, with the hacker. It's just theft, right? Or espionage. So that's my, you know, that's my working definition. So does it have to be fully attributable to a nation state in order to be cyber war? Like, let's say a hacker breaks into, you know, a foreign country and, with, you know, doesn't good do good about covering his tracks. And we know he's an American. Uh, is that cyber war, America against whoever he attacked? So that it's all in the, you know, it's in the eyes of the of the beholder. So if a if a hacker attacks, let's a Chinese hacker, for example, attacks the, the uh, Office of Personnel Management um, with the US government. I was the victim of that one. I know that one well. Yeah, yeah, I I had a I had a top secret clearance when I was in the Coast Guard, and so my files were also at at uh, OPM, and uh, and so that was a pretty good that was that was pretty good act of espionage. So it's if if the Chinese hackers involved were working on their own, there wouldn't really be any way to know that we would the U.S. government on its side would assume that it was being attacked by a nation state, and you know the fact that they attacked the OPM. That would add credence to, to it being a nation state. So, so the U.S. government would gen, would then simply say, "We're going to attribute this to the Chinese government because number one, that's the only, that's international law only governs state to state interactions. It doesn't govern individual interactions, right? So, uh, so it, it has to be a state." If, if the U.S. government wants to respond, otherwise, if it were just an individual, then they would have to go to China and say, we think one of your citizens broke the law and, you know, we want to your permission to investigate or to arrest or to extradite or whatever. So to answer your that's a long winded way of answering your question. Uh, it needs to be state to state uh, for it to be considered uh, warfare or or be be. Uh, recognized under the rule under international law i have always found that interesting right um 
there are, you know, countless articles where you would see something like cyber war this, uh, um, you know, there's a cyber war over here and over there. I mean, even even back early in the 2000s, there was a conflict between China and the U.S. Remember the Hainan uh, Islands spy plane crash? There was that incident there where we had an American spy plane that crashed on the islands in China. Um, a, China, a Chinese, um, you know, pilot died as a result of that crash, and it became a whole big incident, international incident. And because President Clinton at the time wouldn't apologize for the accident, Chinese hackers began to attack U.S. infrastructure. Uh, overnight, we saw hundreds or thousands of hacks take place, and I'm probably exaggerating the number, but I remember it was a very big deal. And even back then, people were like, well, is this cyber war? One of the groups behind that, the Chinese Honker Union, or HUC, I'm, I'm bringing back some old names, Jeff. So you know, yeah, I so, remember. No, I remember. Yeah, remember yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah. So the Chinese Honker Union began to take responsibility for widespread attacks against um, .gov and .military networks. That same year, they also released the Lionworm, uh, which, which spread across Linux servers all across the United States. Anyways. Uh, the point there is that even I participated in that. Um, I was actually recruited by a Canadian hacker, of all people, to start attacking Chinese interests. So even back then, I asked myself as a young man, is this cyber war? Is, that, is, this, what, is this what people talk about uh, or theorize on? But going by your definition, right, or, or what you defined was here, Technically, that wasn't a cyber war, right? That these were two opposing groups of hackers that were targeting each other's foreign governments or governments, right? Yeah, I mean, I here's the thing: I real war, right? People that are involved in real warfare with bullets and bombs and and all of the horrors that go, you know, along with it. There's nothing else like that, and so I, it it's sort of offensive to me to to call it. War. It's not. It's not fucking war. It's it, it, all you got to do is be in a war, and you'll you'll immediately recognize <laughs> that, right? That two hackers fighting each other online. That's not warfare. So, that is so true. Which which I guess leads me to today, right? I, I don't want to skip ahead too much. We're going to kind of come back to other topics, but it, it does lead me to a question for you, which is okay. So there is a, um, I, I just saw recently, Putin actually said the word war in one of his interviews, right? It, which was uh, fascinating to see. We've, we've heard for 10 months, it's been a special operations, right? A special military operation. So, so now that Putin has this, declared this a war, even if it was a slip of the tongue, and there's cyber operations between both sides, can this fit the definition of a cyber war? I know you don't like the term, but yeah, does it yeah. fit the boundaries? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's again, it's, you know, it's probably I'm probably nitpicking, but you're definitely engaged in a, in in cyber warfare if you're involved in in what's happening in between Ukraine and Russia. So uh, cyber is, is so in, integrated into that war that. It's a it's another form of war fighting. Just reading the you know what's available in the public, Jeff. They talk about that you know Russia initially started you know jamming the during the initial attacks, jamming some of the communication stuff, um, disruption of the Viastat modems, and it degraded the Ukraine's front lines. But they're saying that Russia's attacks sort of have, have fallen off as the war goes on. Uh, are you seeing the same thing? 
Yeah, I don't have insight into you know I don't, I don't have the 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 kind the level of insight into de- what what Ukraine is defending against. My contacts uh, in Ukraine are are conducting offensive operations against Russia, so I have more of an insight into what that looks like. But they're they're not part of you know defending, right? They're just attacking. So uh, I can't really speak to the to what whether or not Russia has been you know, successful or not, or if it has increased or decreased, if they're doing what they usually do, it's not really so much Russia anyway. It's, it's the, it's hackers, it's Russian hackers or, or could it even not even be Russian, but it could be hackers from other countries that are, you know, joining in uh, that are sympathetic or allies to Russia that are trying to cause mayhem and disruption in Ukraine. I mean, you bring up a, a, a great point. I mean, you, you talk about what they usually do, and I, I'd love you to dig a little deeper into that and, and what you've seen usually. So Putin's been criticized that he hasn't called upon the, you know, the civilian hackers uh, lately at the beginning of the war and the, the cyber attacks, you know, did dwindle down. One thing we're sort of seeing in the Q1 of 22, the, the cyber attacks against the United States have sort of flattened. And then Q2, it's been sort of a decrease in attacks on the United States. This is just reported attacks, uh, you know, in the public in the public record. Um, some people are saying that's because Putin now has brought in the Russian hackers to to start those attacks against the Ukraine. Um, and, and I know you said your insight is more offensive, but um, could you see that this is normally how Putin should do things? Would bring in the civilian hackers uh, to help with the war, the cyber war? Uh, you know, I I read. Um a pretty good report. It was, it's written by a Russian author. His name escapes me right now, uh, but um, well-known. Guy's a well-known writer on Russian security services. And he did a, a sort of a, an essay or a lengthy, a lengthy report on how the Russian government interacts with Russian hackers and that the Russian security agencies within themselves don't really do that work um, as often as as you might think. That that generally speaking, they just farm it out to these individuals. And so it would make sense if these guys normally, without you know, without the Ukraine, uh, without this current Ukraine-Russia war going on, if if they were the ones normally launching attacks against the U.S. or other countries, and now they're more actively being directed by these agencies towards Ukraine, then that would that would be one reason, I think feasible reason why, you know, you see a, a, a less, you're, you're seeing less attacks against the U.S. this year. The fact is, is that we're all kind of blind as to what's actually happening. So we're trying to pick up clues, right, and read informed sources or talk, you know, to, to people that, that are closely affiliated with what's actually going on versus reading threat reports by western country uh, by western companies that you know you have no idea how valid those sources are what they're extrapolating or what their assumptions are it's a really attribution is like a series of assumptions that's right and those assumptions they don't always hold water you know there's it's like any assumption right you're <laughs> it's a belief it's not a fact if it was a fact they wouldn't call it an assumption so we're all sort of in the dark it's like it's like uh, when the war first started, there was, where are all the Russian cyber attacks? You know, you, you saw that again and again every day. Mm-hmm. 
And I think part of the reason why everybody was asking that question is because of assumptions. Prior to the war starting, cybersecurity companies were inflating Russia's capabilities and what Russia has been doing and what they could do. And this is probably because I'm cynical about the industry. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you right off the bat that Chris and I are also very cynical of this industry, even though we were part of it, right? I, at least I am. I can't speak for Chris, but the the reality is when I when I read some of these reports, I mean, I have to say kudos to some of these authors and some of these companies. They 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 seem to provide some good context and some background and evidence for their research. But we also can't ignore that there's a bias there, right? Um, after all, they are commercial businesses. They are trying to, uh, you know, we're not we're not reading material from like independent researchers, right? So, you know, when I started to see kind of the stories, um, like like Chris mentioned and you mentioned a moment ago, well, where are the cyber attacks? Well, I, I was thinking in my head, well, one, we may not be seeing them. And two, the fact that you expected, you know, these 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 uh, these highly sophisticated attacks, um, you know, is based off the assumption of, of Russia's capability. If you look at, you know, like, let's say the last 10 years of pwn to own, right, and all these different international capture the flag events, you're going to see a lot of researchers or tremendous exploitation skills coming out of China, right? Coming out of South Korea and Japan, um, here in the United States. Fortunately, we've have, we have some really good researchers here as well. But, you know, I could be wrong, but there's there's less um, activity from, from, you know, Russian groups, at least that I've seen. And I don't want to make the assumption, right? But I, I would assume that if, you know, I don't think they're talentless. I don't think they're skillless. I think they they have equal capabilities as Chinese researchers, for example. But, you know, I don't want to make the assumption that the reason why they're not participating in these kind of events is because their government told them not to. Or I think that is the assumption, though. I think, uh, you know, let's follow the path of what what Jeff is proposing here, that, um, you know, the cybersecurity industry wants to pump up that uh, the Russians are about to attack and they have such a skilled set that, that we couldn't handle the, you know, the, the def- defense of these cyber hackers from coming out of Russia. Uh, and, oh, why are we not seeing them at the, you know, the, the global hackathons and that sort of thing? Well, they're military. They can't. They're not allowed to leave the country. They're not allowed to show their skills in that sort of way. Um, but, you know, it, it is a, a new thought. And I, I'll tell you that it kind of goes against uh, the grain. Uh, and it, it makes good sense why uh, for cybersecurity companies uh, that the Russians haven't been that dangerous in the cyber front uh, for, for years. And they've kind of just rode this wave of mythology uh, that they are. Um, and, and maybe the war is kind of exposing it. And, and Jeff, have you historically seen that the, the Russian propaganda has pumped up the uh, that they're you know, they, they're badder than they, they really are? No, I haven't seen that. I, I, they don't talk about it. They You see it in the, it's U.S. and, and Western countries that, prop, that that are doing the propaganda, right, about Russia's uh, capabilities in cyberspace. So, you know, I think what, what is the chickens have come home to roost when it comes to our overinflation of, of, of threats from Russia? And that's why, that to me is why, people were asking that question. They just had overblown expectations. I mean, that, that's such a great point. I mean, I, I want the audience to know, because our, our audience, as far as I know, Chris, from what we know so far, is very mixed. So it's, this is not specifically like a cybersecurity-only audience. But I, I, want the, I want the folks listening to understand that 
just because, you know, we may feel or, or Jeff may feel or I may feel that the uh, the capabilities of Russian actors may have been overblown. Maybe there was a lot of assumptions made. Um, maybe they're just really good and they're, we're not seeing their attacks. Right. We, we have zero insights at this point or very little insights as to what's really happening during this conflict. Um, but, you know, even though we're, we're kind of laying it out that, hey, it, it may have been a little bit overblown. It doesn't mean they don't have those capabilities, right? Something to really think about, um, you know, as we move forward. Because one of the one of the points, uh, Jeff, that you know that that I drive, I try to drive home in these episodes, is that you know the United States does have a lot of weakness. It is a broad attack surface. There's a lot of different ways to hurt this country. You know, we saw during the pandemic, even the pandemic itself caused logistical problems. But once we started seeing compromises during the pandemic, we saw supply chain issues, right? Some of which we we're still kind of dealing with now. So, um, but no, these are these are all great points, man. Like, I, you know, I've been wanting to speak to you about this to- these topics for quite some time, Jeff, and I'm glad you kind of jumped on with us here. We do. We are vulnerable. I mean, if if it were Israel, if Israel were the aggressor, there is no question that Israel is has sophisticated you know, cyber attack capabilities. I mean, they can, that some of the software that, that they, that NSO group was, was, was selling, that was pretty scary shit. It, you don't even have to click a link on your iPhone. It, you just have to get, receive the text, right? You receive the text and you're screwed. That's, that is, that's pretty impressive stuff um, from a, you know, from a, from a cyber, a cyber weapons uh, point of view. And, uh, and I don't know, you know, so if Israel can do it, then it seems to me like Russia could also do it. There's a lot of Russian folks that work in Israel. Uh, Russia has a lot of money in Israel. Israel is, has refrained from getting involved in any way in this, you know, Ukraine conflict. They're trying to keep this sort of middle ground because, because they have so much dependence on Russian money and Russian talent and and so on. let me ask you though about that Let, let's say let's say the nso group was was in russia or the capabilities wasn't was in found in russia would the russian government allow that to be a commercially operated company or would they just absorb it that technology into the russian hackers and so like the nso group kind of got busted because they were so widely selling it out there um it was like yeah. you know so if the russians had the capability would they even allow it to be sold or would they just use it for themselves yeah, I would imagine they would just use it, right? They, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't. They're, they're not. I don't think they would spin it off and try to sell it at all. Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, you know, if you look at Group IB, his their founders in prison for treason, uh, and they and they've been selling their services around the around the world, in the U.S. in, in other countries, uh, and all of a sudden their CEO gets scooped up and. He's still in prison, as far as I know. You know, then there's the guys, um, the officers, the FSB officers that that worked in Russia's in their cybersecurity division, also in prison right now. And well, I don't know for sure what the exact reason is. I know part of the reason was their involvement with Western, other Western cybersecurity folks or intelligence. Or, in fact, I think it wasn't even though some of those folks worked for cybersecurity companies, they had a background in government, so in the, in the U.S. government. So I, I think that was the crime, was that they were engaging with people that 
Russia just claimed were U.S. government, you know, employees and 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 sharing cybersecurity related information. So Russia is pretty secretive around it and doesn't like to have their people engaging, you know, with the West evidently. So no NSO group for Russia uh, is, I guess, is the answer commercially. So, Jeff, you brought up that you have uh, some experience with the the Ukrainians' offensive cyber uh, warfare tactics. Uh, I'd love to get more into more information about that. Yeah, that's a pretty. It's it's been you know, I mean, I've been waiting my entire professional career for an opportunity like this, right? It's 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 like you're able to look over the shoulder of somebody that is able to operate in a battle for their life, because that's how Ukrainians see it. It's not a special operation, you know, it's not a conflict. It, they literally are every day uh, fighting for their very uh, survival, which means, first of all, for me at least, and I know for a lot of other people, that's a really, that's a compelling, super, super compelling uh, scenario. When you have this envi- this kind of an environment, it, it's where it's so pure you know the reasons for the for the war for that at least for on Ukraine side, it's such an obvious case of good versus evil, of, of fighting for your life. It's when you've got that, then pretty much the gloves are off, right? When when it comes to what you can do offensively, and and Russia th- doesn't help because Russia is using mercenary a mercenary army, the, the Wagner Group, to supplement. Uh, it's regular for its regular military and and Wagner group is just basically these are just convicts mercenaries rapists just the worst the worst you can imagine and committing atrocities not just in Ukraine but atrocities in the Central African Republic atrocities in Libya um, it's there it's just uh, it, it's worse than any movie villain. You know, and, but it's just a real life walking shit show. And so when it comes to what can we do to stop these guys, what can we do to hurt Russia? What can we do to, you know, from a cyber perspective, that's what the, that's what the folks that I'm working with are doing, right? They're looking at every possible way. How much damage can we do in a cyber attack that we'll be permitted to do? Because right now it's Ukraine is exerting a lot of, um, restraint when it comes to hitting Russia on Russian controlled territory. And there are, there are examples of individual, you know, small examples like, like explosions at Gazprom or explosions and fires at uh, missile plant at missile factories or uh, research facilities that, that focus on defense related research. But there's been no, attacks against the Moscow subway, against the Moscow airport, against, you know, there's nothing like that. And Ukraine is, is, Ukraine has not permitted these guys to launch those types of attacks. So it's not 100% do whatever you want. That's not the case. But it is, they do have a lot of freedom up until the Russian border. So that leads me to a question. It's not cyber related. And I, I do want to continue on the offensive side. But from your perspective, and, and and Chris, feel free to jump in as well. But from your perspective, is the reason why they're restraining the types of attacks or levels of attacks 
because they're trying to avoid an all-out declaration of war? Is that something that they're trying to avoid? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what they're trying to avoid. They don't want to, for, well, for one thing, they don't want to risk losing the support of the West. So when Russia, when Russian forces came in and leveled a Ukrainian town, uh, Buka, I think it's the name, they came in and just, it just leveled it. I mean, civilians, men, women, children found in hundreds and hundreds, found dead in mass graves and, and nothing was left standing. That, in, that was so infuriating that there was a, the inside baseball story is that they, they really, a lot of people really wanted to hit back. You know, they wanted to do to Russia what Russia did to them. And, and they didn't go there, right? So Zelensky and, and, and the top generals refused to do that. A, they didn't want to make matters worse by having Russia go full, you know, war uh, on this and, and turn everything that they have onto Ukraine. And they also didn't want to risk doing something uh, that would would uh, keep the U.S. and the U.K. and other countries from giving them financial um, aid, right, and from sending them weapons. So that's I think those are the two big um, barriers to to actually launching against uh, inland, you know, inland Russia, um, and and certainly against civilian targets, even though Russia is is killing civilians every hour of, of every day. Oh, yeah, it's terrible. So kind of touching on that, right, the the restraint. We've seen in the past when major corporations like uh, Saudi Aramco, they got hit by wipeware many years ago, and uh, it ended up costing billions of dollars, right? That, that, was, that was a scenario that happened. Um, and then we had the... Uh, the attack on Estonia by Russia many years ago as well, where Estonia was essentially taken offline. I'm sure you remember that. That was a while back. Okay. So with your knowledge, without obviously giving away anything sensitive here, could the Ukrainian cyber operators go that route and or make it even kinetic in some way? Is that a possibility? Yeah. So one of the, uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, they, can, they can definitely do that. They've already uh, done it to a certain degree. With uh, with Gazprom, so with these oil uh, natural gas pipelines uh, that Gazprom runs, they were able to to organize a cyber attack that resulted in an explosion and and a fire. Uh, so in other words, a, a cyber attack that had a kinetic effect. They also um, created uh, electrical fires in um, in a bank and in. Uh, the uh, Kalishnikov uh, warehouse, and at a, a at least a one, if not more, defense research uh, laboratories. So they have figured out a way to, by cyber means, generate enough friction within these uh, automated systems that run electricity in these in these big you know buildings. So they're having. They're having kinetic weapon results from cyber attacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. Uh, that's I I don't see that reported very. They keep working on ways to you know to improve it, right? So it's like an ongoing exercise for them. It's like a, it's like these are like little laboratory tests, 
And there's probably, I would guess, dozens of examples of small, you know, small fires that just pop up somewhere uh, with no with no apparent explanation. It doesn't really do very much. But those were those were sort of their that's their laboratory, right, to figure out. Yeah, that's cra- that's crazy. We're spending millions, maybe tens of million dollars on, on very uh, guided, very you know, get to the point kinetic bombs. Uh, and these guys are doing it through cyber and getting the same pinpoint accuracy results, um, you know, just using code and, and, and some guys with some good intelligence on, on, on how to get in there and, and where to start these uh, these these fires and the, the results from a cyber attack. That's uh, very interesting. And they're also the, the other thing that they're doing, which I think is is we can those of us that, that you know, our, our researchers in this area would uh, would be very interested in is that besides being able to do this on their own. They're also working in relation or they're working in tandem with a special operations team. So they'll, so they'll, just like CIA here has its own, you know, internal army, its own internal Navy and and internal air force and soldiers, right? Uh, GUR, which is the the, the uh, intelligence directorate for the Ministry of Defense in Ukraine, where, where my guys work. They have the same thing. They have their own special forces allocated. That's not, they're not part of the regular army. And, and so they'll do, they'll work on strictly intelligence missions, but they're also now working in tandem with the cyber, with the offensive cyber guys. So if they have a target in inside Russia, then the cyber guys will disable the alarms or they'll give, get them the blueprints or whatever it might be for their practice runs. And then uh, on the day of the operation, they'll support, they'll support it. Maybe have the special ops guys ring, you know, the perimeter with explosives and then have when, when our cyber guys set the fires and the fires, you know, meet the explosives, uh, you have a much bigger bang for your buck. Right. So they're doing lots of really, Really interesting things that I think we'll be writing about a long time for a long time after the war is over. Uh, well, I was about to say, if if a Hollywood producer listens to this episode, uh, they might be hitting you up for some stories because the reality is they haven't made a good hacker movie in many years. I'm sure there, there's some material here alone. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of. I'm sure there's a lot of movies that have come out of this war. Yeah, hackers starting fires is a brand new thing. Hollywood would jump all over. <laughs> Oh yeah, but with that that being asked, Jeff, like how long before this sort of capability becomes like in the hands of you know bad actors? You know, are are, are you know script kiddies going to be able to find a uh, a GUI based tool on the dark web uh, to start a fire in their neighbor's house? I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. I I I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a hacker, and 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 I these guys have not you know explained to me step by step how to do how to set a fire using, you know, cyber, right? But they have said to me that there's, this is not kind of thing that, it's not like a malware tool. You know, it's it's not neatly uh, packaged and able to be sold. Um, it doesn't work that way. The other interesting thing is that uh, this is just something that I, I've heard, you know, secondhand. So I, I, I can't, I can't uh, tell you from firsthand experience, but when the first gas prom explosion occurred and and it was something that was done by the hackers at GUR. And I 
uh, and they they gave me permission to you know disclose that, which I did on my uh, on my on the Substack that I have for this. Since Ukraine inherited a lot of Soviet technology, you would assume that they would have their own researchers looking at the you know these industrial systems, these controller systems, the operating systems, running those systems, and potentially identifying vulnerabilities that they could leverage in future attacks. Uh, hence now, right? I mean, I remember uh, over the course of the last 10 months uh, reading about these random fires that you mentioned uh, all over um, different places, and I found that interesting. You know, in my head, what I honestly thought was that you had, you know, anti-Putin, uh, maybe protesters in Russia or maybe pro-Ukrainian protesters that were just sabotaging, you know, local, you know, gas, um, you know, whatever, physical facilities or whatever it is. Um, but it's interesting to hear the the possibility here of of using cyber to actually cause those, uh, those fires. That, to me, that's, that's mind-blowing, right? Because... You know, even though I've seen conflicts around the world over the last 15 years where you had some cyber operations, or I mentioned the one with China earlier, um, I've never seen something like this. And that's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. I think that they're they're trying to, you know, get better at it. I think the, the complicating thing is that the SCADA systems are, you know, they're all they're not standardized. They're Russian Russia makes changes, significant changes in, in them. When they they buy if they may buy a system from a, a Western uh, manufacturer, but then they'll change it. So it's not an easy, you know, it's not an easy act of coding. You there's a lot of manual stuff that has to be done and tested before you can make. And that's why it's not a scalable, you know, weapon, so to speak, cyber weapon. Sure. So it might be like one-offs, like if they identify vulnerability or maybe an attack path, right? Uh, a, a set of vulnerabilities they can use in tandem. That it might just work with maybe two or three gas bomb, you know, systems, but it may not be like you said scalable across the entire Russian infrastructure, right? Right, right. Or uh, uh, even even if it is scalable within Russia, it wouldn't it wouldn't work on somebody else's system, right? It wouldn't work maybe in the way that a different country has um, laid out its automated system controls. So it's more complicated than just a, a fancy piece of malware that or an exploit. You know, that you can buy. <laughs> well, that, that, I'm sure that that uh, that gives some assurances to our audience here, where they're probably panicking now that uh, you know Ukraine is sitting on a, a shitload of you know uh, a scatter zero days, right? Um, but now I actually have a question for Chris. Okay, if you don't mind, Chris. Not at all. So, as you know, at one point I was a bad guy, right? And at one point I attacked heavily. Uh, in fact, a, a majority of my hacks were against foreign governments. I have no fucking idea why, but I did it, right? Okay. So, in this conflict between Ukraine and Russia, I know there are a lot of Americans that are supportive of Ukraine, okay? What if some of these start attacking Russian infrastructure on behalf of Ukraine or in, in tandem with other operations or just because they just support the Ukrainian cause? What kind of problems can Americans face if they're engaging these kind of operations? From your perspective? Well, I would not prescribe that. I would say don't do that. I would highly, highly recommend not doing that. Um, you, you're not seeing the big picture. Uh, you don't know what you know these forces are doing. You could be hurting an operation. There could be some sort of 
secret operation going on from the Ukrainians. They could have people in a certain place and you hack into that place and they've lost that inside information, um, intelligence gathering, uh, independent people going out and trying to support, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you just don't know what you're going to mess up. Um, from the legal side of things, you know, you're going to put yourself in a world of hurt. Um, if you ever traveled internationally, uh, you could possibly be picked up in a friendly country uh, that, that is friendly to that foreign nation that you're going to attack into. Um, there are international arrest warrants put out for people. Maybe um, we don't extradite. The United States doesn't extradite, but you are on a plane one day and it makes an emergency landing into a country that does. Um, you're putting yourself at risk that way. Um, th th there's too many things that could go wrong. Um, I know you would think you'd be helpful, uh, but but please, please don't do that. That's actually a good a good point. Uh, that's that was uh, one of the things that I had a conversation about with uh, one of these guys that. At, at GUR was that they were upset because the they only have limited bandwidth, you know, and they their attacks that it's all it's all dependent upon their bandwidth. So when you have uh, a lot of people launching denial of service attacks, for example, at at uh, the what you you name the Russian agency or or government or business, that eats up the available bandwidth that they have for conducting their offensive attacks. And as a result, it, it, it hurts rather than helps. You know, a, a denial of service attack, that's bullshit. It's just bullshit. It's like, don't, you're, all you're doing now is making it harder for the offensive guys to get into that network and, and, and find what they're looking for and do whatever damage they, they can do. You're not having any, any negative effect on the Russian entity. You're only hurting Ukraine's ability to do offensive operations uh, against that, you know, against that, that target that's being hit by these, by these volunteers, this volunteer cyber army, for example, that is busy trying to simply irritate these Russian targets and then, and then put on Twitter, you know, that they're, that they're engaging the enemy when it's, they're just using up valuable bandwidth. I mean, those are two great perspectives here, um, you know, and I just want the audience to really just take that in because you have the perspective of, you know, someone that was formerly in law enforcement. You have someone's perspective from the intel side of things and research side of things. So I'm going to share my perspective as a former black hat and from experience. When I participated in the Arab Spring, attacking infrastructure in Tunisia, I have no idea what I fucked up. I have no idea what kind of operations I hurt. And I have no idea to this point if I helped or made the situation worse. Okay. When I started attacking Libya infrastructure and Syrian infrastructure and Iranian infrastructure, to this day, I have zero idea. And I'm sure there's an NSA agent somewhere pissed off at me, but I have no idea if I disrupted any of their operations. And I could have hurt people indirectly, okay? Or, um, you know, I could have just potentially, you know, ruins an engagement. The reality is, is that, you know, I, at least from my perspective, the operators in Ukraine, the thing they probably don't need is for outsiders to come in and kind of, you know, be like a bull in a china shop, right? Kind of stir things up with the now of service attacks, like Jeff said, that's that is bullshit. But also, there's that personal risk you're going to take once you decide to travel internationally. 
And then finally, I guess my, my last point there is, you know, you have no idea what it is you're doing. If, if I were to engage a scenario, which I'm not, if I were to engage a scenario, I would be looking to identify vulnerabilities and I, maybe I'll pass it upstream, you know? That's as far as I would go. Heck, I bet there's more than one NSA uh, former or former NSA guys that's pissed off at you. <laughs> My so. bad. I apologize ahead of time, guys. So, Je Jeff, this has been great. Is there any sort of topic or anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to bring up? Uh, yeah. I'm, I, um, if, if people uh, that hear the podcast are interested in hearing directly from my uh, contact at GUR. He's going to be he's going to be giving a presentation from Kiev to the event that I'm doing in Los Angeles on January 31st. And so for uh, he'll be one speaker. We're also going to have uh, Colonel uh, Milburn, who founded the Mozart Group. Mozart Group is doing amazing work in Ukraine. There, uh, it's a, it's a, a collective of of retired. Special Operations Forces guys. What happened was, uh, it's a great story uh, that I'll tell quickly, but uh, Milburn uh, retired in 2019 after 31 years with MARSOC, and he ran all the special operations in the Middle East uh, uh, when, just before he retired. And then uh, started writing. He wrote a book, and then he was writing for a task and purpose in, in Ukraine at the time of the Russian uh, invasion. And... Uh, he was watching the, he was in Kiev and he was watching um, the Ukrainian army leave truckloads of AK-47s and ammo and grenades on the streets for civilians to arm themselves so that they could defend, you know, themselves against this, this invasion, right? And they had no training at all. These were literally had no training, period. They didn't even know how to shoot an AK-47. So when... They joined the army and went to fight the Russians. Their their casualty rates were 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 horrendous. You know, they leave; they'll be killed. 60, 70, 80 percent of them would never come back after the first day. And so they needed basic combat training. And they and Mel, because Melbourne already had from his earlier life some uh, connections with the Ukrainian military. They asked him if he would just. Could he, could he do some military training while he was there? And, uh, and he put together a five-day five day course, compressed course of basic combat skills. And he called some of his friends that, who were also retired, and they immediately came out to help. There's no money. They were, nobody was getting paid. Uh, they just saw the need, and they acted. And they, while they were doing the training, calls came in to get civilians, family members that were trapped on the front lines to try to find a way to get them to safety. And so Milburn um, with some of his guys would go out and do that as well. And so now th that became this two pronged approach that to this day, they're still doing T training components of Ukraine civilian army in basic skills and in medical in combat medicine, and then doing um, evacuation missions on the front lines, including in Bakhmut, which is all over the news. If you just do a search for Bakhmut, it's like a, it's like the, it is a, it's just a meat grinder, uh, trench warfare. You know, nobody's seen it since World War II. And Milburn is the only, his group, the Mozart group, the only organization that's bringing food, water, 
and medicine to civilians still in Bakhmut. Wow. Artillery is, is flying, drones, suicide drones, rockets, even small arms fire. That's all happening while they're doing humanitarian missions. It's unheard of. And yet these guys are doing it. So so he's going to be speaking. My uh, contact at GUR is going to be speaking. And any money that comes in uh, over and above just whatever it costs to do the event is going to the Mozart group to help fund their continued work in the, in, on the front lines. So that's uh, uh, safehouse.global uh, for people that want to attend. Or even if you can't attend but want to donate, you can do it there. Is it physical only or can you attend virtually? And both. So you have the option of attending virtually or physically. And if you don't want to do either, but you want to donate, so you've got three ways to go. Sounds good. You want to give out that domain one more time? Yeah, it's uh, www.safehouse.global. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, this was a great conversation. Very educational. Uh, very, a lot of insight into the cyber war and some of the lessons that we're learning from the war going on over in the Ukraine. Um, and great having you on the, on the show. I appreciate it. Well, it was my pleasure. I, I'm honored that you guys invited me. So thank you. Hector, that was a great conversation with Jeff. Really interesting topics. I think the audience is going to love it. But if the audience has questions for us, they can reach out to us at questions at Hacker and the Fed. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, please reach us at sponsor at Hacker and the Fed. We have new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.